Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 64 for October 31, 2019. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. This week, we're sharing the first episode of a new Institute podcast project that offers a deep exploration of the history of U.S.-Israeli relations. Decision Points is a new Washington Institute podcast that provides fresh insights into critical moments in the U.S.-Israel relationship from prominent historians and policymakers. The series is hosted by Ziegler Distinguished Fellow David Mikofsky, a renowned expert on U.S.-Israel relations, including territorial solutions to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Each episode highlights an important event in the 70-year history between Israel and the United States, from President Truman's recognition of the State of Israel to the internal U.S. government deliberations over Israel's wars to Washington's involvement in the Israel-Palestinian peace process. In each episode, host David Mikofsky is joined by a distinguished figure who has been intimately involved in Middle East affairs as a policymaker, journalist, or political leader. The podcast is both a history lesson, a biography of the key Israelis and Americans that shaped the modern bond between the two nations, and a quest to understand how these decision points continue to reverberate today. We'll hear the inaugural episode with Israeli historian and former ambassador Michael Oren on the surprising American role in the British Balfour Declaration after this. This is Kate Bauer, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. Welcome to Decision Points, the podcast that tells the story of key moments in the history of the U.S.-Israel relationship. My name is Dave Murkowski, Ziegler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations, and I'm excited to go on this journey through history with you. This opening episode will focus on the start of the U.S.-Israel relationship, and specifically the American role in the Balfour Declaration when the Zionist movement received international recognition and legitimacy from Britain, which was just starting to control the area at the end of World War I. How did the United States, a growing force on the world stage, view this seemingly unimportant Jewish national movement? What were the forces that set the stage for the U.S. to support this document that made Zionism a matter for the global powers of the day? But the U.S. connection to the return of the Jews to the promised land of the Bible, which Jews would call Zionism, started centuries ago with the first ship of European settlers that docked in America— bringing the Puritans who connected to the idea of a close relationship with God. Biblical references in early America include John Adams' famous words, quote, I really wish the Jews again in Judea as an independent nation, end quote. The focus also manifested in the American connection with Hebrew is demonstrated through a level of education and class. Yale, Harvard, Dartmouth, and Columbia all gave commencement addresses in Hebrew. Dartmouth actually had seven commencement speeches given in Hebrew between 1777 and 1809. Another connection between America and the Israelites of old were the group of Christians who wanted to return the Jews to the Promised Land in order to bring about the Second Coming. In 1814, this movement was picked up by Pastor John MacDonald in Albany. He interpreted Isaiah 18 as a call for Americans to facilitate the return of Jews to the Holy Land. The verse calls for, quote, ambassadors, end quote, to be sent to, quote, a nation scattered, end quote, which he saw this as a command for American missionaries to return the lost people of God, the Jews. 
William Blackstone, a Methodist, petitioned President Benjamin Harrison in 1891 to convince the Turkish Ottomans to give the promised land to the Jews. He obtained signatures for the Blackstone Memorial from important figures such as future President William McKinley, a Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and prominent businessmen John D. Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan. The U.S.-Israel relationship also manifested itself in travel literature, which was popular in the 1850s. The most famous author in this genre was Mark Twain, who went on a trip to Palestine in 1867. Twain's travel literature caused his rise to fame and was more popular than his novel Huckleberry Finn. Yet religious restorationism was not sufficient to lead to Balfour. There was politics and the drive of key influential personalities in the U.S. Louis Brandeis, a prominent attorney from Louisville, Kentucky, who would later become a U.S. Supreme Court justice in 1916, was a strong supporter of Theodore Herzl, the architect of political Zionism, and a man who astutely understood the need to harness influence in high places for the Jewish national movement. But the road to Balfour was primarily paved with a seismic geopolitical change. World War I meant the end of the Ottoman Empire that had controlled the Promised Land for 400 years. Britain captured Jerusalem and therefore had a key role in deciding the future of the Holy Land in consultation with the United States. The turning point which we are discussing today is U.S. President Woodrow Wilson's decision to support the Balfour Declaration. Wilson made contrasting promises, sometimes saying he would support the Declaration and other times saying the time was not ripe. However, it has become common wisdom that without Wilson, the Balfour Declaration would never have become British policy. The key question, therefore, that we're looking at today is, how did Wilson come to support the Balfour Declaration and why? And I'm delighted that we're joined all the way from a studio in Tel Aviv by Michael Oren. He's the former Israeli ambassador to the United States. He's a prolific author, and among his books are Faith and Fantasy, America in the Middle East from 1776 to the Present, and it's really a fascinating read, and, and I'm really delighted, Michael, that you're here to join us today. Let me begin here by just asking you to reconcile your you of the unique roles, both a diplomat and a historian. How do you find one informs the other for you? Completely. History is an immense tool in the conduct of diplomacy. It gives one context. It gives one depth and understanding. If you now go back to history and, you know, the sense of restorationism, how important was that in terms of building American support? I was just struck by that in, in reading your book, uh, the centrality of this idea. So the important role of, of, of Christians, Christian missionaries in uh, helping shape America's support, at least for the idea of a Jewish state. Well, I always say that the U.S.-Israel relationship is a special relationship, and there's really no relationship like it in the world. The United States has a special relationship with France, has a special relationship, say, with Italy. But the American-Israel relationship is more special still because it rests not on one or two pillars, it rests on three. It has uh, you know, the, the common democratic values, it has the shared strategic interests, the defensive alliance, but beyond that, it has a spiritual basis, which is in fact the, sort of the biggest and strongest pillar of the three. And America may have a strategic and democratic tie with France or with Italy, but it doesn't have strong spiritual connection to either of those two countries. 
And to understand the spiritual connection, you have to go back. You have to go back much further than Israel's creation in 1948. You actually have to go back further than America's creation in 1776. You have to go back to the early 17th century, to the Puritan pilgrims who came to North America, who had escaped uh, persecution at the hands of the Church of England, whom they liked into sort of Egypt. The king of England was, was Pharaoh, and they, the Puritans were the new Israel. And they loved the Bible. You know, Christianity before the Puritans had pretty much ignored what they called the Old Testament and given emphasis to the New Testament. And these Puritans read the story of the Jewish people, and they loved it, and they became the new Jews. They gave their kids Hebrew names, uh, David and Isaac and Sarah and Rebecca. They studied Hebrew at their universities. It was a required subject. I always said that James Madison failed Hebrew at Princeton and had to do an extra year. Uh, you see it in the logo of Yale and in Dartmouth and Columbia. There are reasons, and there is a reason why there were a thousand American towns and cities with biblical Hebrew names, particularly in the north, in the northeast. So it's deeply ingrained. And these these Puritan pilgrims and their descendants read the Bible, where God says to the Jewish people, and by the way, He says it in Hebrew. It's the only language that we know God speaks, says in Hebrew that I'm going to rescue you from exile. I'm going to return you to your promised land. I'm going to redeem you. And these Puritans and their descendants made a conclusion that in order to be good Christians, to be good Americans, they had to help the Jews back to their promised land to help fulfill God's promises to them in the Old Testament. And that's why you had not peripheral figures, John Adams, the second president, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Woodrow Wilson, and I imagine we'll talk more about Woodrow Wilson, were all people who believed that to be good Americans and good Christians, they had to help the Jews come back to the land of Israel and reestablish their sovereignty. It, to bring us now to the Balfour Declaration and, and understanding the role of Balfour himself, but before I do, I understand you have a personal story about the Balfour Declaration, so I'd like yeah, to I hear it. Yeah, it's kind of a controversial story. It's this. Um, once upon a time, I was a professor, and I was teaching simultaneously at Harvard and Yale and teaching a graduate seminar on Zionist diplomacy from the Balfour Declaration to Oslo. David, you'll appreciate yes. this. You'd like to have taken this. Oh, I wish I should have taken it. And it, it has its thesis that the Balfour Declaration in many ways represented the apogee of Zionist diplomacy, because it is only in that document where there is a formal recognition, even international recognition, of the existence of a Jewish people with a right to self-determination in our ancestral homeland, the term Jewish people, a national home for the Jewish people. And those terms do not appear in the Partition Resolution of 1947, they don't appear in the Camp David Accords of 1979. They don't appear in the Oslo Accords of 1993. They're not there. And what, what Zionist diplomacy has aspired uh, over the course of the 100 years since the Balfour Declaration was to get back to that apogee. So that was the thesis in the course. And I was invited to give a, a, a faculty lecture at another university. I won't name it, but a, a very fine university. And I presented this thesis with a lot of um, a lot of uh, documentation. I showed how in the Oslo Accords, Israel had recognized the PLO as legitimate representative of the of the Palestinian people. Israel recognized the existence of a Palestinian people. The Yasser Arafat, in his letter to Yitzhak Rabin, had only recognized the existence of Israel. And I advanced the thesis that this was a fatal flaw in the Oslo Accords, and which is why uh, successive Israeli leaderships, uh, left and right, have aspired to get recognition of the existence of a Jewish people with an unassailable right to self-determination in our homeland, and that's the basis of peace, that mutual recognition of peoplehood. And we failed. We haven't succeeded. This was where Zionist diplomacy had not succeeded. 
Now, the reaction of the key faculty members in the hosted universities was astonishing. They were furious at me. Israel does not represent us. We're Jews, but Israel is not our nation state. And you can't claim it's our nation state. My response was, I'm not making any claim for and against. I'm simply saying this was Zionist diplomacy, and this is what Zionist diplomacy aspired to achieve, a recognition of, of Jewish right to self-determination as a people in our homeland. They would not accept this. And it basically, the, the lecture broke down over their opposition. Hmm. Now, why this is an interesting story? Because it, it really goes back to the debate around the Balfour Declaration and the reaction of, of key figures in the American Jewish communities, key figures in the Anglo-Jewish community who opposed the Balfour Declaration because it arrogated the right to speak for a Jewish people or even that there exists a Jewish people apart from Jews who happen to be American and Jews who happen to be British. And just shows, shows David, how uh, deep-seated and combustible these issues remain to this day. Actually, perfect segue into the actual debate in Britain. And I want to give people a flavor of you know, who Lloyd George is as prime minister and Arthur Balfour as foreign secretary and what animates them to be so supportive of this idea. And yet, as you point out, some of the opposition within the British cabinet by Edward Montague, he was Jewish, and yet he was the, the colonial secretary from India. So explain a little bit about the debate, about these two towering figures, Lloyd George and Balfour themselves, what drove them, and then we'll get to the Wilson angle. The debate actually begins in the year of Balfour's birth in 1848, when there's a, a huge debate within Britain about whether British Jews should get the right to vote. It was a peculiar debate because most, of course, British Jews wanted the right to vote, but the people who opposed Jewish suffrage at the time were those who would be would subscribe to that restorationist notion that the Jews should return to their ancestral homeland and the land of Israel because basically giving the Jews the right to vote was taking away recognition of the Jews' identity as a separate people. You following this? Yeah. So Balfour grows up in this, this very rarefied uh, environment. And by the way, the Jews did get the right to vote. But there's a tension. Uh, are Jews a separate people or are they Englishmen and women? Montague opposes the Balfour Declaration for precisely that reason. I'm not a member of a Jewish people. I truly, my religion is Jewish, but I am an Englishman, a proud subject to the British Empire. That is the tension that's built in there. Balfour, and to a lesser extent, Lord George, Lord George, come out of an environment which wedded restorationist thought, deep belief in the biblical promises and the need for Christians to fulfill those biblical promises to the Jews, with an imperial British worldview. How do we protect our empire? And one of the ways you're going to protect your empire is by guarding the northern and eastern approaches to the Suez Canal which is the jugular vein of the British Empire, what connects the British Empire to the vast wealth of, of India and South Asia. And there's always this concern that there will be a hostile power somewhere around that Suez Canal. Because if you are a, when the British take over Egypt in 1882, and then they start making coaling stations for their Navy around the Persian Gulf, by the end, of World War One, when the British have succeeded in evicting the Ottomans, the Turks, from all of the Arab Middle East, 
if you're a British soldier, you get on a motorcycle at the Suez Canal, you can drive almost all the way to the to the Iranian border across the Persian Gulf without ever leaving British controlled territory. Think about that. Now, if you have a all of a sudden a, a hostile power put in this place called Palestine, you could drive a wedge between two halves of the British Empire. P.S. Just scooting ahead a bit. It is why the British so strenuously opposed uh, Israeli sovereignty over the Negev. So much so that they were encouraging the Egyptians to invade the Negev because if the Israelis controlled the Negev, then the Negev puts a wedge between the British Empire in Egypt and the Suez Canal and the British Empire in what was then called Transjordan, Iraq, Kuwait, etc. Balfour's coming with these two worldviews, restorationist and imperial. And they meet over the question of how to dispose of the territory of Palestine that has, is soon to be liberated from Turkish rule. Now, the Wilson dimension and the fact that the Brits do not want to go ahead with the Balfour Declaration in 1917 unless they have the blessing of the President of the United States. Can you talk a little bit about that, about why is Wilson so important for the Brits? Well, I think you have to understand, first of all, that to be restorationist didn't mean you loved Jews. You may love the Jewish people, but you didn't love Jews. You may want them back in Palestine, but you don't necessarily want them in your neighborhood or in your country club. As I mentioned earlier, many of the British figures who were against giving the Jews the right to vote in the British Empire were in many ways anti-Semites. They loved the Jewish people, but they wanted them back in Palestine. Wilson, in certain ways, falls into that category. Wilson was, if you read his memoirs, his remarks, those of his wife in particular, Edith, uh, was sort of what you'd call a, a garden variety anti-Semite. And yet he was the grandson, son, and uh, nephew of Presbyterian uh, ministers. He imbibed restorationism from the earliest age, was part of his belief system. And a, he went advice, against the advice of all of his senior counselors, including his secretary of state, Robert Lansing, his personal political advisor, Colonel Edward House, who were adamantly opposed to Zionism. House listed three reasons. One was that the Jews of America themselves were hardly rallying around Zionism. The reform movement in particular was singularly anti-Zionist, that the Arabs would never accept it, would never accept the Jewish state there. And that uh, the greatest argument of all was, uh, will Christians of the world abide by the fact that the killers of Christ will have a state in the Holy Land? That line. But it was Wilson's restorationist worldview, which at this precise moment in history, and it's a real question, David, whether it could have happened at any other moment in history, where it met up with a peculiar geostrategic situation that obtained in 1917. What's happening? First of all, there's the, the communist revolution in Russia, the overthrow of the czar, and the fear now that the Russians under the communists, under the Bolsheviks, are going to withdraw from World War I and create a situation where all the Germans fighting on the Eastern Front can then move to the Western Front. There is the question of whether the United States is going to enter the war. And Woodrow Wilson, who runs for re-election on the platform, he kept us out of the war there is strong public opinion in the United States against joining what we now call World War I. That feeling. So on one hand, it's to keep the Russians in the war, get the Americans into the war. And there's a third fear, and that is that the Germans themselves will issue 
a Balfour Declaration. Now, keep in mind, the, the headquarters of the Zionist movement is, is largely in areas controlled by the central powers, whether in Austria or in Germany. And, you know, it's outliers like Weizmann, Heim Weizmann, who are in Britain, but most of the Zionist leaders are, are in the central powers. And That's Germany right. and is Balfour, very open to the, Balfour, the Zionist idea. Sorry to, sorry to interrupt you. Uh, Balfour himself cables the United States with a news report that Germany is about to come out with its own version of the Balfour Declaration. So, you know, this is an important moment. Uh, it seems it's a unique moment. Think right. about the confluence of these factors. Yeah, you know, when the Balfour Declaration is issued, the British take pains to drop leaflets over the German trenches. <laughs> One with the Balfour Declaration, and why the French rush to uh, second the Balfour Declaration. Right? They have a reason. There's, there's strategic reasons. So there is Wilson, and Wilson's caught in the middle of all this. And add one more and, factor, if you could, on the geopolitical side, which is the U.S.-Turkish relationship and the fact that the U.S. is not formally at war with Turkey. And Wilson, it seems that part of his hesitation and uh, when it comes to his decision on Balfour is, how do I do this without going to war with the Turks? And does that have an impact on Wilson's decision well, if I'm going to support this, I am not going to make this public. Has a big has a big impact. Why? Again, it has to do with who Woodrow Wilson was. Remember, he's the grandson, son, and nephew of Presbyterian ministers. He's very close to the missionaries, the American missionaries in the Middle East, particularly Cleveland Dodge, and they are writing to Wilson, the missionary, saying, "If you declare war against Turkey, the Turks are going to do to us what they did to the Armenians." So he's got that weighing very heavily on him as well. So when he's got a sort of a religious belief that the Jews should be restored. He's got a strategic issues, whether or not to get involved in this war. And he also has, I guess, a personal tie, you can say, to these missionaries, many of them he knows, you know, individually and for many, many years. And so Edward House, Robert Lansing are saying to him, you know, why should we get involved in, in an issue in which we really have no stake and one which is going to, to cost us in the long run. Yeah, just an interesting sidebar is that the, the U.S. and the British Navy, uh, just prior to World War I, uh, convert from coal to oil. And it's precisely in this period that oil begins to be discovered in the Middle East. So already, strategically, Americans are thinking, well, if we do this with the Jews and the Zionists, we're liable to cost us in terms of the, the amount of fuel we can give to our Navy. So it's many, many considerations are at play here. And as so often in history, David, it comes down to personal relationships. Well, that's what Should gets me, if this? I could, yes. <laughs> I'd like to now get to an American domestic angle, which is Louis Brandeis and uh, Stephen Wise and their role. And, you know, sometimes their interlocutor is Colonel House. And House tries to convey to them that he's on their side. House seems to play all the angles here. So I'm trying to understand and looking at the turning point is the topic of this podcast, the role of these key influential Americans in helping shape Wilson. And also, you know, something we haven't really discussed yet, which is, you know, we, we remember Wilson for his 13 points and self-determination. And certainly you would think that Zionism fits very much into Wilson's philosophical credo about who he is and what he stands for on the world stage. It was, I'll go from the back uh, forward. Yeah, yes and no. Um, the Jews were not the majority population 
uh, in Palestine at the time. It doesn't quite fit the 13 points. Also, the United States did not apply the 13 points very vigorously in the Middle East because the United States didn't have a stake there, didn't have troops fighting there. In fact, the British had offered, Balfour offered uh, to Wilson the possibility of accepting an American trusteeship over Palestine, and Wilson didn't want to hear about it because, hey, we're not involved here. This isn't our game. It's a British game or a French game. But at the same time, they also opposed the, the Sykes-Picot Treaty, which divided the Middle East between the British and the French. Wilson said famously it reminded him of a brand of tea, Sykes-Picot, mm-hmm. older sugar. Yeah. So the personal relationship, really, the key one is Brandeis. Yes, Stephen Weiss had access and was able to get a letter from Wilson in the fall of, of 1918 that published the Balfour Declaration around the time of the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, and that had a big impact on the diplomacy leading up to the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, greatly strengthened the Zionist hand. But the key, key relationship is between Brandeis and Wilson. Brandeis, the Harvard Law wunderkind, meets Woodrow Wilson initially when he's the president of Princeton and then when he's governor of New Jersey and becomes an outspoken supporter of his during the 1912 presidential elections. And they are friends. Yes, you know, again, I mentioned I said that, that Wilson was kind of the garden variety anti-Semite, but he had people like Brandeis who he respected and friended. And it is Brandeis who has access. And so Balfour comes to, to Washington in the spring of 1917. And remember, everything is happening right then. Is the United States going to get into this war? Is Russia going to stay in the war? Uh, how much influence do the Jews have over the Bolsheviks? How much Jew, how influence do the Jews have over Congress? Again, anti-Semitism plays a certain role here. And Balfour has been stymied by his own government. He can't get his own government to make this decision on this declaration that if and when the British army moves into Palestine, and it looks like they're going to, we're going to promise this area as a national home to the Jewish people. And he comes to Washington, Balfour, convinced that if he can get Wilson to sign on to this idea, it will persuade the British government because they so need America in the war. And he's not getting anywhere. Lansing tells him to take a powder. <laughs> he's, he's not getting anywhere with the Wilson's advisors. He needs to actually get into the, the Oval Office. He's not getting there. He turns to Brandeis. And if I get that right, I believe it's May 17th, 1917. Brandeis says to Balfour, don't worry, I got it. And he goes into the Oval Office, has maybe a half an hour meeting and walks out, walks out with Wilson's approval of what will later become the Balfour Declaration. A pivotal moment in Middle Eastern history, Jewish history, Israel history, certainly, that short, short meeting between Brandeis and Wilson. And it's interesting, just as a side note or an epilogue even, is that uh, when Wilson was asked later why he went against the advice of Lansing and House and so many other people, he said the following line, and I'm, I'm virtually quoting it, to think that I, the son of the manse, manse being the, the cottage in which a, a pastor would live, the son of a manse, the church, would have the opportunity of returning the Jewish people to its holy land. Amazing. It is amazing. You know, we, we remember Truman who, after he recognized Israel, was so touched and tears came to his eyes when someone compared him to Cyrus that he brought I'm Cyrus, he said. Because these people knew right. their Bible. They knew their Bible. Forth. And he said, I am Cyrus. Yeah. And You know, uh, I just, when I was an ambassador in one of the first meetings I had up on the Hill, I'd go into the office of a, a congressman from West Texas. Right. He probably had a district that was five times the size of the state of Israel, probably not many Jews in it. <laughs> and he had a Bible opened up on his desk. And he points the chapter in Genesis where it says, where God says, those who bless my people will be blessed. And the congressman looks up and says, you see that? I believe in that. How much aid do you need for Iron Dome? Wow. 
That's a great unquote. story. Now, to not understand that is to not understand the history of America's right. involvement with Israel and in certain ways not with America's involvement in the Middle East. Right. They see the Bible as a history document that offers blessing to those who are supportive of the, the people, you know, in the Bible and the, of the biblical Israelites. It's an amazing story. And you've really helped us really cast the spotlight on that kind of forgotten part of uh, Zionist history and uh, piece of U.S.-Israel relations, because Wilson is not remembered. People all know Truman, but people don't know Wilson. So this was and real. without the Balfour Declaration, there would not have been the British Mandate. The Balfour Declaration was written into the preamble of the British Mandate. Right. And the British Mandate then is, is written into the Partition Revolution. Right. So without, without Wilson, there's no Balfour Declaration. Without Balfour Declaration, there's no mandate. Without mandate, there's no partition. Right. And without partition, there's no UN creation of a Jewish state. So it may sound reductive, but... Uh, no. It's true. No, it's perfect it's that you really, you really just yeah. very succinctly explain the centrality of the Balfour Declaration as a precursor for uh, Israel and, and U.S.-Israel relations today. So I can't thank you enough for taking the time and, and talking to us. I really believe very few Americans know about this role of Woodrow Wilson and everything that went around it, the geopolitical understandings and the like, and the, the personalities, it's, it's forgotten for the most part. So you've really helped shine a light on it, and uh, I can't thank you enough. Takeaway from this interview is how the groundswell for the restoration of the Jews to the Holy Land, how it really takes off over time. Coming back to the Puritans who really saw America as the new Zion, and over time, from John Adams and onward, they basically saw this through a religious lens, that this was somehow a religious imperative to restore the Jews to the Holy Land. And we saw it in America. We see it in Britain, uh, Lloyd George. Everyone in the British cabinet that favored Balfour had a religious attachment and how that religious attachment really helped shape some of the key moments. In and of itself, it probably would have not have been sufficient, but it was maybe necessary, a prerequisite for some of these more geopolitical considerations. The geopolitical considerations of the British were varied for the Balfour Declaration, ranging from keeping America in World War I as a kind of a strategic bridgehead to the Indian subcontinent, the Suez Canal for the British, and for the United States— Wilson did see advantages strategically, but he was ultimately humbled by this religious function that he would be able to play in restoring the Jews to the land. So the religious dimension was foundational in and of itself and might not have been sufficient. And we see with Truman, his desire to publicly avoid alienating himself from the Ottoman Empire, even though he was in World War I, he had not yet declared war on Turkey per se, and how that weighed on, on Wilson at this key juncture. But ultimately, it didn't prevent him from acting. And the British saw Wilson's support as indispensable, and they would not have moved forward on Balfour without Wilson. So there was an interplay of factors, both for the Americans and the British, in making this key decision. Thank you all very much for listening. 
I also released a book co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross that addresses the history of U.S.-Israel relations. Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. Please go to your favorite podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell your friends. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible. Basha Rosenbaum, Richard Myron and Anouk Millet of Earshot Strategies, Paul Woody Woodhull of District Productive on Capitol Hill, Scott Boxer, Rena Wasserstein, and David Patkin. Come join us next time. For-